is my 31 female boyfriend, mid-30s, male. Does he have too much power in this relationship? So, Reddit, here's where I'm at. I run a successful art gallery, and I met this really handsome guy. I mean, like, super ridiculously handsome at a flea market, and he bought me a really expensive scarf. I didn't even know his name. And so we started dating, and he buys me all sorts of great presents. He cooks all sorts of great food. The sex is amazing. But he insists on picking out my clothes, and I don't even know if I like them. And most recently, he told me to go to the Chelsea Hotel and brought a prostitute. And then we went to like a sex show. It was really weird. Um, Should I end this relationship? I don't know. I really like him, but is he going too far? Look, all I, late 30s male, want to do for my new girlfriend, 31 female, is cook for her, clean for her, pick out some nice clothes for her, you know, the usual boyfriend stuff. But when I want to go to a cowboy store and swing around some riding crops, she starts getting nervous and acting like I'm going to lash out and do something crazy. Why does she want me to meet her friends? Why won't she let me bring my fancy new riding crop to all of her parties? I'm starting to wonder... Am I the asshole in this relationship? Cue music. Hello and welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. Uh, this is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans get together and have a rockin' good time talking about all of our favorite movie soundtracks. Hi, my name is Joseph Wade. I will be your host for this evening. Here with me tonight on this um, accidental Valentine's Day special is my lovely and belligerent co-host Libby Cudmore. Libby... Uh, I, I'm I'm very nervous about this episode tonight, and I don't want to step in on any landmines. Help me, please. <laughs> don't. Just relax and enjoy. I'm in control here. So, uh, if you haven't guessed from today's intro, we're talking about uh, 1986's Nine and a Half Weeks, a.k.a. the Fifty Shades of Grey of the 80s. Holy Moses. Yeah, this is um, definitely a switch from our last episode. And it's, it, I almost got whiplash watching this. <laughs> this was an experience. This was absolutely an experience. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't even know where to start. Like, I don't know if I'm equipped to talk about this, but I've done my homework. I've done my research. So, you know, let's just buckle up and get ready because this is about to get wild. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's start by talking about last week's poll. Yes, we had so. two. Two polls from last week. Uh, first of all, we asked our listeners, you kind listeners, um, what was the best song on the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack? And with a staggering 72% of the vote, you all mostly agreed The Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead was the best song on the soundtrack. And it is, but there's so much other good stuff. And you and I were talking about uh, the other day how we've both been obsessed with the sun's too much of a good thing ever since we did that episode. Yeah. And like doing that episode kind of prompted me to go and watch the dumb, the official dumb and dumber sequel, dumb and dumber two. And they, even they knew what they had because they couldn't stop themselves from using that song again in that movie. 
Oh boy. Yeah. But Yikes. only for like two seconds. That it, two second intro and then done. Out. <laughs> <laughs> so what else did we have on our poll? Uh, in second place, we had uh, too much of a good thing with uh, 16.7% of the vote. Uh, and then tied for third place, we had Insomniac. And if you don't love me, I'll kill myself with uh, 5.5% each. Which I've been getting, I've been getting a, if you don't love me, I'll kill myself stuck in my head a lot, but I've been listening to Insomniac just over <laughs> and over. Yeah, ever since we talked about the Proclaimers, I've been hearing I'm good, that, that uh, 500 Miles song everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we summoned it. Mm-hmm. So we also ran a second poll, which was from the music that didn't make the cut. So Tide, actually, at 31% was the Crash Test Dummies, mm-hmm, and Todd Rundgren's uh, can we still be friends? Very nice. At, yeah, and I was really surprised because I thought Red Right Hand was just going to run away with that. Well, uh, but I guess we don't have a lot of theater nerds and or goths. No, no. And, and and uh, I remember uh, can we still be friends? Like took the very early lead, and I thought that was going to run away with it. And then the Crash Test Dummies fans came out and kind of you know evened it up a little bit. There are dozens of us, literally dozens. <laughs> yes. So, Red Right Hand came in with 23%, disappointing showing for Nick Cave, and Boom Shakalak came in at 15%. And I know there were a couple of you out there who were really, really rallying for that, but alas. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. The other thing that I love about that poll in particular was that all of those songs had music videos. Yes. Actually, I think in so both the- polls, like, every song had a music video, and it was fun, like, discovering all of those. Mm-hmm. I really had fun It was with a it. It was a, a music video era, which was... You know, that's kind of the, the fun thing. I think we've only got uh, one music video on tonight. So be sure to check for uh, for the poll after we drop this episode. Yes, yes. They always come out the, uh, the day of or the day after the episode drops. So uh, it pays to be current when you're listening to this show. Mm-hmm. Because we pride ourselves on being on top of today's trends. Like, for example, 1986's <laughs> uh, Nine and a Half Weeks. <laughs> Which does actually have some ties to to uh some modern movies yeah just a little bit so all right do we have any billboarding school for this uh we do very a little bit you know this is kind of in the era where like the mid 80s was the era of the soundtrack i think this one hit the charts march 29th 1986 at number 170 that week the number one album on the charts was whitney houston's whitney houston album and the number one soundtrack was Pretty in Pink at number 16. Ooh, that's a tough one to beat. Yeah. Uh, it lasted 15 weeks on the charts, peaked in its sixth week at number 59. Almost 69. That would have been perfect, but no. <laughs> nice. Eh, Could have been nice. Uh, but the week that it fell off the charts, number one was Janet Jackson's Control. And Fair. the number one soundtrack was Top Gun. Uh, oh, that was the summer of Top Gun. Yeah. <laughs> So honestly, you could even say that uh, Kim Basinger's character in this film, that's Elizabeth, she was on the highway to the danger zone. Ooh, yes, very much so. Or at so. least the crowded Manhattan taxi cab to the danger zone. <laughs> the, uh, oh, I don't, I can't make a. Subway to the danger <laughs> zone. You beat me to it because I couldn't think of a good name for a subway. Yeah, it's called the subway. Well, I was like, it has to have a real name, doesn't it? A train to the danger zone. <laughs> There's a lot of double entendre going on in that joke. 
<laughs> so anyway, so right. Libby, uh, tell us a little bit about Nine and a Half Weeks. So the title comes from the duration of the relationship between uh, Lizzie, who runs an art gallery, and John Gray, who is a Wall Street guy, stock guy, I guess. He sort of does something on Wall Street. We're never quite told what that is. I don't know. Maybe he's an escort. Uh, They are played, of course, by Kim Basinger in her second uh, round as a sex pot on this podcast, and Mickey Rourke, who is ridiculous ridiculously hot like i cannot stress enough how hot mickey rourke is in this film it's like you can't believe you look at him now and you cannot believe that he used to be that hot he used to look like that i, I know you're like, <laughs> i wrote in my notes God. i wrote in my notes mickey rourke looks like a great value bruce willis moving on um no but like a soft like he's he has like a such a kind soft face yeah, he, he has the kind of face that you can't imagine him, that character doing the things that he eventually does in the film. I know. Which I think is a perfect little bit of casting. Like, they know that, and they know, you know, what's coming, and you're just like, oh, this this guy, really? Oh, jeez. Yeah. But then, like, what you know about uh, Mickey Rourke, you're like, yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense. That guy's fucking crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is honestly my second favorite Mickey Rourke film after Sin City. I've seen, I think, four Mickey Rourke films. Mm. Um, now, so, have you are are you aware of, or have you seen another Nine and a Half Weeks? I am aware of it. I have not seen it. I don't want to. Uh, I'm looking at its Wikipedia entry here. The poster for it, I can't really put it into words, but Mickey Rourke has the creepiest face I've ever seen. Yeah, because it was made about ten years later. Yeah, and it was a rough ten years for Mickey Rourke. Well, I mean, even at that point, he wasn't that far gone yet it's just he's making one of those super stalker faces on the poster yeah he's and a little bit of a super stalker yeah yeah but so uh, but this whole relationship they meet uh on the street first in chinatown and then at a market and they begin dating but very slowly he starts playing these or actually i guess not really very slowly right off the top he starts playing these increasingly uh sort of bondage psychosexual games with her and some of them she seems to really get into well uh, those are mostly accompanied to music mm-hmm. and but some of them start to get a little creepy she doesn't like it and she starts kind of falling apart uh, as this relationship uh leads her deeper into kind of a nervous breakdown yeah so yeah uh it's really it's kind of a funky little film apparently it was huge in france and the way it's shot actually developed like a whole new style in france Mm. this was a hugely influential film yeah there one of the things i actually really liked about this film was the way they sort of photographed it basically like it's it's got that kind of a i don't want to call it sleazy because it's not necessarily sleazy but it's like very high I guess basically like the MTV look and they really overproduce a lot of the the sex scenes and they make it really stylized and very um, glossy, I guess. Yeah, but not but, pornographic because it's no. shot so quickly from so many different angles. Like it never there's never like a money shot. Right. And you're, it doesn't and you, linger. And you're always aware that they're being very careful not to show too much of Kim Basinger or too much of Mickey Rourke in any one shot. Not enough, Mickey Rourke. If you know oh, what I mean, yeah, depends. Uh, yeah. yeah, honestly, you Neither see more of Kim Basinger in Cool World. 
yeah, but kind she's of. a cartoon. But but like what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is like they they really ground it in like the real world. You see a lot of like the people on the streets, and like there, there's lots of really fun close up shots of like dogs' faces and cats' faces and stuff. Yeah, and it's a very it's very grimy. It's still like that grimy era of New York. There's a scene near the end where she's running through Times Square, and it's nothing but porno theaters. Yeah, <laughs> and and it also. There, it's not like the all white New York that we see now. It's not, you know, the uh, the girls New York or the Sex in the City New York. There are black faces, brown face- faces. There are, you know, old faces, young faces, middle age, like very human faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it has a real kind of grainy film quality to it, which which I really love because that's what New York looked like. Yeah, and also, like, I watched this on a Laserdisc because I'm a crazy person. Yes! But How much did you pay for that Laserdisc, by the way? One ninety five. That is outstanding. I actually thought you paid $1.99 for it, so I was off by four. Oh, it was literally the cheapest way I could watch this film. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous. I paid but... $3.99 to watch it on Amazon. Womp womp. Uh, well, it's weird. On Amazon, you can rent the original version for two ninety nine, or you can straight up buy the uncut, uncensored version for like fifteen dollars. You can't rent that version. Yeah. And so, like, I'll, I'll watch the laserdisc, but also like the laserdisc now in twenty two thousand twenty in the era of HD, it's like watching porn through a screen door. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! Well, my original copy of this was a VHS from a video store that was going out of business. Oh boy. <laughs> Which, honestly, I think is the best way to watch honestly, nine and a half weeks. Yeah, like, watching it in, like, standard definition, like you would have seen, you know, late at night on, you know, Skinamax in 1992. That's, like, the perfect way to watch this movie. Because that's, like, exactly yeah. the vibe they're going for. Yeah, because it is. It's grimy. Yeah. So, But not so much that it turns you off. Because, like, they really do kind of, they class it up a little bit when, they, when it yeah, matters. Yeah, I think this film is immensely sexy. Like, I'm... You know, it's, really put myself out there. I think this is a, like a sexy as fuck film. No, it is. It, I mean, <laughs> I have to, I'm picking my words very carefully. It is a damn stylish looking film. <laughs> stylish. Stylish. That means. I don't care. Look, if you've ever heard me on the Shattered Shield, you know that I'm just like nothing but like wall to wall horniness all the time. I know. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to be. You're trying to temper it down. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be the, uh, the, the PG, keep the little, a little bit of PG-ness in there. <laughs> Wow, you're a gentleman. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, so let's let's dig into this soundtrack, shall we? The first song that really comes up in this film is uh, "The Best Is Yet to Come" by uh, Luba, an artist I do not know a lot about. I don't know anything about Luba, but uh, we're gonna play the song here because it it does it is the song that kind of kicks off the film. So a lot of the soundtrack has that kind of 80s sort of uh, techno pop sound to it, like mid-tempo yeah. techno pop. Yes, and uh, it's it's like that big, like bombastic, like it's the 80s and we all have big hair. Yeah. So it really, it's, this is the scene, this is uh, Elizabeth, she's walking to work through disgusting, gritty New York City. Uh, she's getting catcalled 
even though she's wearing like the most giant sweater jacket that ever existed. Every, there's a theme that runs throughout this movie that everybody is way horny for Elizabeth, which makes sense because she's Kim Basinger with yeah. her remarkably rectangular face. Yeah, why wouldn't you be? But yeah, also, she, but- like, through starting the film through to the end, like, she's wearing progressively less and less clothing. Like, she starts out in these giant, like, trench coat kind of deals, and it kind of slowly becomes, you know, 90s and, and uh, lighter clothing and things like that. And power suits. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, this is, and I think, this isn't the love theme to that, which was uh, John Taylor's I Do What I Do. Yeah. So, but this, it sets up the movie perfectly. The best is yet to come. In both senses of the word. Yeah. And also in the sense that, you know, this is not the best song on the soundtrack by far. No. It's fine. It is. The, yeah. We really don't get good until we get to the B-side. We're, we're being perfectly honest here. Pretty but, much, uh, yeah. <laughs> Look, we all know what you're here for, so. Uh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But this, what I found kind of interesting about uh, Luba, she's a uh, Canadian musician Mm-hmm. And she's not the only one on this soundtrack. No. So they kind of, they went to the Great White North to get a couple of our, our artists here. Who knew Canada was this horny? <laughs> <laughs> well, my friend Juanita is a uh, uh, romance writer. She writes as J. Margot Critch. And she's like the thirstiest woman I know. She like matches me for <laughs> thirst. And I love her. So, and she's from Newfoundland. So Canada's, I guess, pretty pretty thirsty. I mean, that's all they have to do up there, right? <laughs> Drive Zambonis, I guess, and listen to the tragically. I don't know. I don't know anything about Canada. <laughs> listen, I know that they have like funky uh, McDonald's products, and I know they have ke- ketchup ch- uh, flavored potato chips. That's r- really all I know about Canada. Luba actually uh, begins and ends the film. Yes, and she's the soundtrack, pretty much. Yeah, she, this is uh, track two on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to uh, the other Luba song a little bit later, uh, yes. because that's the one that basically ends the film proper. Um, but yeah, so this is kind of the, the, the part of the film where Elizabeth and John are ha- having their first initial meet-cutes and their first couple of dates. And their and- meet-cutes are really just staring at each other across crowded fish markets. Basically, yeah. Like she, he, he, what is he says to her? Like both times I've met you, you've been buying chicken, and like the yeah, first cause... time it's like at a, at a at a meat market, and the second time she's like looking at a, at a flea market, and she's looking at a mechanical chicken that craps eggs, which is <laughs> wonderful. But she gets way, way, way too excited about. Uh, she gets a, the appropriate amount of excited because I was also that excited about it. Now I know what to get you for your birthday. Yes, please, and thank you. And actually, at that song, um, or at that at that market rather, there is a song called uh, "Savior" by Winston Grennan that is yes. not on the soundtrack, and that's a reggae song that's playing live in the market. Uh, should we put a little bit of that in here? Or yeah, let's throw a just... clip in there. Okay. I need some wisdom to open my eyes. I want to climb to the mountain top and look in your eyes. I just want to live. It's not on the soundtrack, but it's fun. There's nothing more to say about it than that. It's a fun track, and it's 
it kind of sets the mood a little bit. It's sort of a a, uh, a market that's multicultural, multi-ethnic, and you get a little bit of that flavor out in the street. I love it. They're not Canadian, though, like barely no. everybody else on the soundtrack. Well, <laughs> you can't Canadian reggae, people. I don't know. Ooh. I don't know that they're not Canadian. That's true. I mean, we, we just assumed. Yeah, which is wrong of us. And then at one point, John takes her to what I thought was his house until he, ex- he explained that it was a friend's house, which appeared to be some kind of a houseboat. Yeah, and it is that houseboat is nicer than any house I have ever lived in. And for a while, I lived in an apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Oof. <laughs> but yeah, also, a two-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath apartment. Oh, my God. That I had to myself. I had. I was living like, even Elizabeth has a roommate. <laughs> a roommate who I want to point out is ridiculously horny. Cause, and that's Molly. Elizabeth yeah. is frigid. She's she's cold. She needs a man. She's also divorced, as we know, because Molly starts fucking her husband in a side plot that's never fully explained. No, but as as I said earlier, I, I said that Mickey Rook looked like a, a a budget Bruce Willis, and then you find out her ex husband's name is Bruce. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, I knew it. I fucking knew it. <laughs> knew there was a knew it was tied to it. There's a Bruce in here somewhere, and I'll find him. <laughs> but um, this also, this houseboat has brick walls, which blew my mind. <laughs> like, that's a damn sturdy houseboat. <laughs> and we get another music cue on here, which is uh, Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which he puts on while he's making up the bed to fuck. Billie Holiday is a marvel. She's a fucking national treasure. Strange Fruit is not a fucking song. I'm sorry. It's just, it's not. It's not. I I have a feeling, like, this is his first, like, test of her. And I have a feeling it was him going, how weird am I allowed to get and how early? <laughs> he went way too weird, way too early, because she says, I want to get a cab. And to his credit, he takes her home. But not after sort of weirdly torturing her first, like, no one can hear you scream. Like, okay there, Jigsaw. Oh, yeah. Like, they, they go to a... um. A carnival. I guess I want to say it's Coney Island, but it could be anywhere, really. It is Coney Island. Okay. It's Coney Island. But he, I recognize he it. Puts her on a Ferris wheel and he t- has the guy take it to the top and then stop it and they just walk away. Like they just go to a bar or something. <laughs> oh, what an ass. I know. He's such a weirdo. But like, he looks like Mickey Rourke. So you're like, I think I'm going to say weirdly compelled by this guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if anything else, you get a fun story out of it. I mean, who wouldn't yeah. love to be stuck on a Ferris wheel by Mickey Rourke? <laughs> Dear Reddit, I left my girlfriend at the top of the Ferris wheel and she screamed. I bought her balloons, but she still seemed mad. Am I the asshole? <laughs> 10,000 comments. Yes, in all caps. <laughs> Except for one dude who's like, you bought her balloons, it's fine. And then, okay, one of my favorite scenes in this film is like they're walking home from, I guess, the carnival. And they come across this group of kids. And the kids try to I'm hustle. I'm surprised them. this is your favorite scene in the whole fucking well, film. Because it's a, it's a, it's about like meeting people, like the actual real people on the street, and it's just a bunch of fucking kids who hustle him for five bucks because one of the kids says he can fart the themed jaws. It's so dumb. And then he 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 rips one note, and then Mickey Rourke immediately asks for his money back because like, no, I can. What was he saying? No, I can go out and buy the record for that price. <laughs> There's no music except for the one note of Jaws, which isn't even really the first note of the Jaws theme. It's just a fart. <laughs> it's just a fart. 
I give to you nine and a half weeks, one of the sexiest films ever made. And you pick the scene where a kid farts as the best scene. I am forced to make my own fun here, okay? Let me have one. Oh my god, I don't believe you. There are other and better scenes in this film, but I love this this one is mine. Oh, this is what I get for trying to voice this on an unsuspecting man. This is probably we should probably I'm sorry, have... you thought this was you thought this was high society? You thought this was art? No, 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 no. Roger Ebert loved this movie. I also enjoyed this movie. Okay. I'm meeting you halfway, but you have to also meet me halfway. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about two songs. Let's get to the next one. Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> the I guess okay, the next scene is um they're back at they're back at her place and he's telling her to undress. Yeah, and it's so hot. It's it's very hot. He he blindfolds her. Mhm. And they do this thing with an ice cube that is damn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's you're just kind of like, "Oh, man. Mm. Oh boy. Oh boy." Yeah. And uh, then it cuts like that. You assume they have sex and then it's like the next day. But we we don't know any of that. We just kind of assume it. <clears throat> and that's the thing about this film is that in its time, it was incredibly scandalous. Yes. The U.S. version is cut to pieces. And there obviously there's an extended cut that played very, very, very well in, in Europe and Canada. But if you look at it, now honestly it would be rated like pg-13 at most probably because yeah. this was a hard r in 1986 mm -hmm. but it's honestly you see sex like this on television yeah i saw 10 worst things on twitter today yeah so, so. it's it's but that doesn't that doesn't take away from like how like absolutely hot this shit is. yeah it really <laughs> because it is. really does work it really does um, but then he takes her to his hotel, his apartment, excuse me, and his apartment is very fancy because it turns out he's like some kind of a stockbroker. He's, he works at the business factory. We'll say that. Yeah. He's Bob executive. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he is a literal walking, talking Vincent adult man. It's what mm -hmm. we're saying. <laughs> and. <laughs> well, at his apartment, he gives her a watch. A beautiful yes, gold that's watch. Right, that's right. And he tells her Each day at twelve o'clock, would you look at that watch and think of me touching you? Would you do that for me? Yes. So she goes back to her job at the art gallery and she's looking through slides because she wants to have this this show. She's looking through slides of the work as she looks at her watch and it's noon. And uh, the Eurythmics, The City Never Sleeps, starts playing. Mm, yeah. And she gets so turned on that she starts to, um, uh, you know, um, enjoy herself. Go to town, I believe the kids say. <laughs> yes. And the, what, what I love about this scene, we'll get, we'll get to the Eurythmics in a second, is she's sitting on the, uh, the clicker for the slides. Yeah. And you yeah. you see 
very little of her. We see her like writhing around. She's also wearing garters and thigh high stockings. Like who wears those to work? Like unless you are a sex worker. Who wears thigh high stockings to work just at your job? But um, I, mean, I mean, listen, I'm, I live out here in flyover country. I just assume that's how everyone in New York City dresses. <laughs> Did you say flavor country? Do you live like near flavor town? Listen, flavor country is what the Marlboro Man represents. <laughs> I said flyover country, which is also what the Marlboro Man represents. <laughs> but uh, she's sitting on it, and to show like her stimulation, you see just the click of the picture is going like faster and faster and faster. Click, 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 click. click. Yeah. It's so. It's just again. It's it's artistic and it's beautiful mm-hmm. and sexy. Um, now this song. Uh, the Eurythmics, The City Never Sleeps. Let's play a clip of that. Okay. At the risk of TMI, this song when I was listening to it on the soundtrack, which I have on vinyl, which I think I picked up for like $3 somewhere. I, of course, thought of that scene and almost like a, like a compulsion, like got turned on. Like a Pavlovian response yes, to that like, scene? Yes, like to that song was just like, sploosh. Oof, man. <laughs> that's, how, that's how good the conditioning is like not just from the character one character to another but from the movie to you yes and this mute like one of the things i really love about this soundtrack is you know we talk about for instance dumb and dumber the dumb and dumber soundtrack is not really tied to you can put any of those songs you can put any song in dumb and dumber because it's just playing on the radio these are such brilliant set pieces that they sound best in the context of the film. If like you just put on the album without watching the film, they don't sound as good. They have to be within the context of the film. Right. And and not like Dumb and Dumber where you could probably switch out those songs, like randomize it. Yeah. Like these these songs work so well in this particular scene and not that scene. And they're they're know? really, really well crafted. And actually I did a Eurythmic song on uh, Record Saturday recently i uh, i played would i lie to you and it reminded me how much i love the eurythmics this song is so sexy and it's so I, erotic is the only word i can think of annie lennox's voice she has this marvelous ability to to belt without ever yell singing but also to just sort of purr mm-hmm, yeah yeah so, i really 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 love this is, it's not my favorite song on the soundtrack, but it's definitely in the top five. It's its a very good one, yeah. And this one appears very late, too. Like, it's like the next to next to last song on the soundtrack. Yeah. Oh, so. Which, and the, no, I, the order of this soundtrack is kind of strange. It's a little odd, yeah. So. But I don't think that takes away from how how good and, and how, like, how much of a mood piece this song in particular is like it really does set a tone and set a a feeling of this movie like it's you're not in the full blown sort of 
bedroom mood yet you're kind of getting yourself there yeah and it never it doesn't ever have it doesn't have to be the divinals i touch myself right because it i feel like they knew what they had with this song like this this would be suggestive enough to kind of go along with the the um art gallery scene and you can kind of put one and two together and you get that i I don't know how to put that into words i'm sorry no you couldn't (laughs) put another song there the the two work perfectly in in rhythm and in mood and tone and so to swap that out would would be ridiculous but also it's just it's so suggestive and i think that's why it works because like at this point in the film and this point in the relationship you know she doesn't yet know entirely what she's getting into with him she's just kind of got this vague idea of this man and how much he turns her on and then the song itself it really is just a song about the city it's annie lennox kind of describing the sounds and feelings of of you know night in new york city Mm -hmm. and it's like it's just that 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 feeling that kind of vague feeling of like i know this is enticing and alluring but i'm not you can't quite put a pin on it yet and especially because new york was at that point at night pretty dangerous right yeah you know it was one of the most cities we're not in home alone 2 yet we're still kind of in the the mid 80s Mm -hmm. but this also this movie is so it's such a a weird little love song to New York. I don't think it could take place anyplace else. I don't think so. No. So without ever being ex- without ever being explicit in like, look, it's the Empire State Building. Look, we're it. It's not Home Alone too. Like you said, it's not like, look, everybody, it's New York. It's New York for New Yorkers. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Chinatown. It's art galleries. It's back alleys. It's Coney Island, but not. Mm-hmm. It's it's the hideous parts of all of it and it's weird looking back on it because somebody watching it you know in 1986 that's the new york they know now it's a fucking period piece yeah yeah like you you know just kind of through context clues that like john probably works on wall street but you don't see a whole lot of that Uh in the film but but it's enough it's enough to kind of get you to give you that feeling and give you kind of the idea of okay i get what this guy does if even if i don't get entirely you know through the movie just straight up telling me he's very rich so wall street something like that yeah, exactly and this was like right no this was like this is before the movie wall street so never mind yeah, yeah. so but uh, then um the next scene in the film like she's back at his place and they're having a very uh, sexy scene with food. Yes. And all, now- set, all set to, of all things, uh, Bread and Butter by uh, the New Beats. And specifically the, that version, the original, not the Devo version that's on the soundtrack. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, about Bread and Butter. Okay. So it Let's- was a 1964 tune. By uh-huh. the, as you said, the New Beats, uh, they were a musical trio. Uh, one of their members, Larry Henley, later co-wrote "Wind Beneath My Wings," which wow. I didn't realize was recorded by like literally everyone, and but and popularized by Bette Midler. So, mm-hmm. uh, this song also, as the original, also shows up in Simon Birch and Anchorman, as well as commercials for Quaker Rice Cakes cakes doritos and spam so this is the version 
this original that's in the film. Let's play a clip of that really quick. Okay. Of course, this would be in our Under the Covers series, which takes on a whole new meaning here. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it sure it, does. Yes. In this scene, uh, very quickly, he is blindfolded her, because that's his thing, and he's feeding her different foods. And it's it's sexy, but it's also really funny. It kind of is. It's very playful. Yeah. And which is you know, very delightful. Like, At one point, he gives her cough syrup. Like, dude, I'm calling the fucking police. Yeah, really? Because at that point, it's like, like Vicks in the 80s. You don't know what's in that shit. <laughs> so, fucking codeine. But, um, but, but also, it, it it tells you how far back that scene is. Because, like, at one point, he just straight up feeds her an entire jalapeno. <laughs> and she freaks out and drinks an entire jug of milk. Today, I feel like you feed someone a jalapeno, they could take it. Like, jalapenos are, are like, nothing nowadays. Okay, well, I couldn't, but... Yeah, I mean, if well, he, I mean, you'd, have, you'd have to feed her ghost pepper. I, yeah, I think it's it's become so normalized now. Like it's like a jalapeno. What 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 are we? What is this baby stuff? Yeah, feed me a habanero or a ghost or a Carolina Reaper. Give me one of those. Yeah, <laughs> this is yeah. But it it ends with him like drizzling honey all over her, and that's like a lot of honey. I'm like, who's gonna clean this up? Okay, that brings me to, to something that I was going to ask you earlier, but we kind of decided to save it for the show. In the uncensored cut, there's one shot of him like drizzling honey on her that I I had to imagine was was the in the uncensored version. Um, there's one shot where he's the initial like drip of honey, like she she's like hold, sticking her tongue out and he's like drizzling it on her tongue. That's in the that's in the the film. It is? Yeah. Okay, because I just assumed, like, that's way too suggestive to be in the original film. No. Wow. Okay. Yeah, well, this, then, this film goes yeah. there. It's funny, because it's like, it breaks all taboos. Like, I'm pretty sure people have, you know, drizzled honey on each other, or fed I each know, other. But, I know that, but the way the film shoots it, it looks like something Oh, else. it's, yeah, it's filthy. <laughs> uh, but I mean, like, he pours, like, a whole thing of honey on her. She gets really yeah. messy. And it's... And like, then, and then they just like you know mash faces together. So like he doesn't care, she doesn't care. They're like in it. I know, but you wouldn't be able to get your face apart from hers. Just like, well, like at that stuck point, together. At that point, do you want to? I guess, but you want to breathe at some point. Or there's other I parts. Suppose. There's other parts on the body to kiss, Joe. I Sometimes know when a man loves that. a woman, and she's covered in honey, and milk, and jalapeno juice. What what you're saying is that Kim Basinger is America because Kim Basinger is the land of milk and honey. <laughs> she is indeed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I also have to bring this back into, you know, reality for a minute. My sad version of reality. So a couple of, a couple episodes ago we talked about Weird Al and how oh uh, we would we would hear a Weird Al song and not know that it was a cover of something until years later when we discovered the original. That happened to me with this film when I realized that the food scene in this film was parodied in Hot Shots. And I, I've, I've known that scene, the parody, for like 25 years. And then this scene happens and it like my world is shattered. <laughs> I knew that was a parody of something, but never knew exactly what. And all of a sudden, here it is. Shattered or expanded? 
lang- my, my cinematic language has expanded. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so now the Devo version of this. Right. I really can't think of a better band to do, because this is kind of a novelty song. Yeah, this is very chintzy and silly already. Yeah, and it's, a basically, it's basically about this guy... His woman feeds him bread and butter and toast and jam, but then he comes home and catches her eating chicken and dumplings with another man. Now, one of the things he makes sure to say is that she doesn't cook T-bone steaks. And frankly, I'm going to eat chicken and dumplings with some other dude because I'm not hanging out with somebody who has the palate of a four-year-old. I'm sorry. Eat a fucking steak, man. Well, and then in the Devo version, they alter the lyrics where it's not it's not uh, chicken and dumplings, it's it's uh, chicken McNuggets. I know, which I'm also just like I I do love chicken McNuggets. I'm a fucking four year old, but uh, yeah. <laughs> they're delicious. What can I say? They're the only thing I can eat when I have a migraine. It's weird. That's fair. That's yeah, fair. That, that's like the only time I let myself have them. No, I I get it. Like sometimes you just have to have some chicken nuggets. It doesn't matter from where. Yeah, but yeah. Um, this it's a relatively straight cover. Otherwise. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's got that Devo flavor to it. Yeah, it so it's way. got that. It's a little discordant and it's thick on the synths. Yes, but absolutely. By the time you actually get it, because it, it starts with that really, really thick synth hit. And we should actually have mm-hmm. put that in earlier. Well, what the heck? Let's do it right now. Yeah. And also, I love that Mark Mothersbaugh is doing that, like, falsetto voice so hard. Yes, yes. But by the time you actually sort of get to the the end of it, it mm. doesn't sound that much different. Not really. So, it's, as I said. It's... But I'm, I'm interested as to why they didn't use the Devo version in the film. I have a feeling that they, they probably realized too late how silly it seemed. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. And so they say, well, just put the original in there. It's not that much different. Because I think... I think Devo is maybe a step too far for this kind of a movie. Yeah. Maybe I, not the scene, but definitely the movie. I love Devo. Devo's the I best. have nothing wrong against Devo. It's just I, I kind of get why they would not want to put them on the soundtrack to um, two hours of softcore porn. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I also just want to point out, uh, there's a scene where he goes to a friend's house. We don't know what happened. And she looks through his stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is probably the scene that plays the worst nowadays. So we're yeah, just this, gonna... is, this is where the film takes a turn. Yes. Um, and everything else you could sort of be like, eh, consensual. But in this scene, she looks through all his stuff. Do you notice what she's watching while she's waiting for him to come home? No. She's watching Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's our second Spielberg riff. Oh, wow. I missed that. Yeah. Oh but, my god. Um, he tells her, I want you to face the wall and raise your skirt because I am going to spank you. Mm-hmm. And it sort of devolves into I think what we're supposed to think is it's supposed to be like, oh, she's being ravished, she's being overpowered. But nowadays you're like, he straight up rapes her. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And then like has the nerve to like cry at the end of it, like, excuse me? I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> The movie seems to suggest that, oh, because she likes it in the end, it's not rape. But like, no, that's not how that works. Now, yeah, is it? Yeah, she does not 
want to have sex on that table. And no. but she cares for him because he's so wounded. And there's a, a term for that uh, that is. Uh, well, while you're while you're looking that up real quick, I do want to say that um, in the scene immediately before that, when they're just kind of lying around, just chatting about whatever. And then uh, Elizabeth says she, you know, she wants to him to come to like a dinner party and meet her friends. And he refuses. And she's like, don't you want to meet my friends? And he says, I don't want to meet anybody. And that was the moment for me where I was like, okay, this guy's full of shit. Because, like, I've been in that relationship and it does not end well ever. No, I have too. It was a friendship. But um, it, uh, it's, it's fucked up. It's like, no, actually, you do meet my friends. And my friends are awesome. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to possess me like that. Yeah, like, this... Either either this is a fling or this is a relationship, and like that's the conversation that sets that tone, like decides that, right? Very there. true. Like, but uh, and and then it just immediately jumps to a scene where he basically rapes her on a table. Yeah, and and at the end of it, there's a sense. Uh, Kate Mann, a Cornell p- philosophy professor, to- coined the term empathy, where Ooh, we're conditioned okay. to feel sorry for a man. Because he's wounded, he can't help it. He just he cares too much. Um, he's a broken piece of shit. I get it. Yeah, she describes it as an inappropriate and disproportionate sympathy powerful men often enjoy in cases of sexual assault, intimate partner violence, homicide, and other misogynistic behavior. So it's just that uh, men are so I fragile. See. So what about him? What about what I he didn't... feels? I didn't mean to do these things because I'm having emotions. Yes. Basically. So, um, boys will be boys, if you will. <sighs> that's that's why we're in the, the mess that we're in now. Gestures at everything. Yes, it is. I, but we're still, we, we still go along with him. Because I guess it was the 80s and we didn't know better and he looks like Mickey Rourke, so... Well, because um, we have to tease this out, otherwise there's no movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But um, he makes a pact with her that she'll see him at night. He'll do all the cooking, all the cleaning. She won't ever have to do anything. He'll pick out all her clothes. And she she won't have to think. Yeah. And I mean, here I'm already drawing the lines. I'm like, you can cook and you can clean. Don't you dare pick out my clothes. I have, like, specific rituals for how I pick out my clothes. I am so, like, even if I'm just wearing jeans and t-shirts, I have thought that whole thing through. Mm-hmm. I agonize over it. Honestly, I'm wearing pajamas as I podcast this, and I agonized over that. <laughs> just, like, what pajamas do I want to have while I podcast? You can't see me. I'm wearing a t-shirt that says Double Deuce, actually. Nice. It's my Roadhouse t-shirt. <laughs> awesome but uh so he goes to buy her a suit which he she actually asks, like aren't you gonna ask my opinion and he says no no <laughs> and me and all the while uh we're hearing uh cory hart's your asian eyes on yes. the soundtrack yes so let's go to a clip Corey Hart is our second Canadian on this soundtrack. 
<laughs> yes. And I didn't realize, because one, I always get Corey Hart confused with Corey Haim, and they're not the same person, which is news to me. And also, he's the guy that's saying sunglasses at night. Apparently, it, he is a huge fucking deal. Yeah, he's the sunglasses at night guy. So, as, like, as soon as the chorus kicks in on this song, I'm like, oh, I know who this is. Yeah. <laughs> but he is apparently a giant fucking deal. Mm. He's won, like, Juno Awards. He... Uh, he he was 11 when he sang Ben for Tom Jones. Oh, damn. Yeah. He recorded songs with Paul Anka, and he just, like, reached out to Billy Joel. So, which, you know, takes points away from him. Because he was on tour, it was just like, can I sing with you? And he ended up recording demos, because Billy Joel's backup band was like, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, why not, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, he's had a ton of albums. He's... He like his uh, one of his album covers was shot by Herb Ritz. Okay, he is not like a one hit wonder. He is a big deal. Yeah, and I'm looking at the music video for this song right now, and it's it is beautifully melodramatic because oh, it's God, it's yes. Corey it's Corey Hart walking through the snow in the forest with a bunch of horses being very dramatic while he sings this song. Yes. This is basically sunglasses at night. Slow down. Yeah. This is sunglasses at night in the winter. Yeah. It's sunglasses at night after taking Vic's cough syrup during a sexy time. (laughs) It's very, very slow and wistful and gauzy yeah the, a lot of the songs in this soundtrack have that kind of mid-tempo sort of lurch to them where you're not sure if you're supposed to, i mean it's 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 basically sex music all this is sex music yes um but this one actually closes out the a side oh honestly i think but, she looks great in that suit i want that suit she does like he's got good taste in clothes i'll give him that i know even though like two scenes ago he was wearing sweatpants but, like, even he looks good in them. Like, that, just, again, just, I cannot stress enough how hot Mickey Rourke was. He could wear sweatpants and nail Kim Basinger. Mm-hmm. There's not a man yeah. alive now who could do that. Except maybe Clive Owen. Clive Owen could wear sweatpants. He'd be like, I would do that right now. Mm-hmm. I'd let him feed me jalapenos. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> That's, he's, like, Mickey Rourke was the only thing equal to Mickey Rourke. It's Clive Owen in, like, 2004. I could see it, yeah. So, incidentally, when he was in a movie with, Clive, with Mickey Rourke. Oh, dang, that's right, yeah. yeah. It all comes back around to Sin City. Every, at some point, eventually, it will all it's come the, back around. Sin City is the singularity. Sin City, mm-hmm. 100%, is one of my favorite movies. It, it's, it's, a, it's a banger. It really yeah. is. I like, saw, to this day, it's still yeah. pretty, it still holds up. I saw this movie because I liked Mickey Rourke so much in Sin City. There you go. So, which also has Bruce Willis, who's not Mickey Rourke. Who is not Mickey Rourke. Because <laughs> we have determined. Uh, eventually, we're going to have to determine which one is not the other, and Bruce Willis is not Mickey Rourke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this one, actually, Eurasian Eyes goes straight into the, uh, the montage, the romance mm-hmm. montage set to Slave to Love by Brian Ferry. Let's go to a clip. To need a woman, you got to know 
moment i heard this song on the soundtrack i knew this was montage music oh yes it just has that sound yes because that the the chorus fill right there the slave to love Mm -hmm. is like that's like tailor-made for montage and the chorus hits like during the montage where they're kind of having their dalliances about town but like the chorus hits when they're like at the top of a bell tower and they're having sex behind the giant clock It's kind of great. Yep. It's it's amazing actually. Uh, this one is again this is like soft core. This even sounds soft core. It's like kind of high up there in the register. It's again gauzy. Mm-hmm. It just sounds like soft focus. Like if music could be soft focus, it would be Brian Ferry's Slave to Love. That's honestly that's a that's a better way to put it cuz I was going to say this is like the song sounds like sex whispers to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that also this is definitely this song has satin sheets yep yep this song sleeps in satin sheets that's that's beautiful um this is all the trappings of romance without actually being a relationship kind of like this the love story actually it has all the trappings of romance while also kind of being sleazy horseshit <laughs> Aww. I'm not entirely in, in love with this song, if I'm being honest. I like I don't want to be, but like, then I think about it, and I'm like, like I like I feel it like in like my upper chest, like I, right below my collarbone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel it, and I'm like I'm better than this, but it's also extremely adult contemporary, which I'm a sucker for. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just that I've listened to this so much for this show that like. The more I listen to it, the less it works on me. Like, there's kind of a magic trick at work here. And it works in the film, but when I listen to the soundtrack, it's like, ugh, get me away from this. Yeah, and I think that's that's where, because you and I, you know, having been doing this for well over a year now, there are soundtracks that are better than the film and work separately. There are films mm-hmm. that are better than the soundtrack and work separately. It's very rare that you find one where they they work perfectly in concert. Yes, yeah. And, and this they, is like they, you can't separate them. This is absolutely one of them. Yeah. So this song I I do like the idea of like you driving to work. I just imagine you wear khakis to work like all the time. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I wear blue jeans to work. Give me a break. <laughs> nice. But just you there in your khakis and your polo shirt driving to work like in your Kia or whatever you drive. Just like listening to this in traffic. Just <laughs> that is an immensely humorous image to me. <laughs> That's my life. It sounds beautiful. So I just also I want to point out that when they're fucking in the clock. Yeah. There's well, there's no foreplay. He's no, like a two pump chump. <laughs> For all this sexiness, it's like ten seconds. Of thrusting, and then that's it. And I mean, he, like, makes that groan. It's like, really, man? Give the guy a break. He ran up, like, ten flights of stairs to fuck that woman, <laughs> I know, okay? like, take a breath, <laughs> I guess. But um, also, I want to put out at the end of, like, so they fuck in the, you know, out in the clock. And then she gets a cold, and he feeds her soup. 
And it's yeah. still going, slave to love. That's the, that's the coda to that scene. Is <laughs> that she gets a cold. Ugh. This the, movie's so goofy. The things we do for love, right? <laughs> I guess. But that looks like really good soup. It probably was. He probably cooked it himself. Probably. He seems like a really good cook. But he tells her, because she says, like, how do you know I'd respond to you the way I have? And he says, I saw myself in you. That is the most narcissistic bullshit I've ever heard in my life. No, not for a second. And it's just like, fuck you, dude. I don't, be- I don't buy it, dude. No. <laughs> so... She it's... she's honestly a little naive, I think. I yeah, think... she's because she's frigid. She is, but also like I, you can you can tell she's expecting this to be a real relationship, and he knows from the jump that's not what this is. Yeah. So um, we actually get um, our next song mm-hmm. is uh, actually a, an instrumental piece. It's uh, Stuart Copeland with the Police with Cons. Uh, Let's go to a clip. Yeah. So this is she stalks him while he's eating a hot dog and goes to the office and she brings him <laughs> lunch, pastrami and oatmeal cookies, no chips. Really? Oatmeal and cookies? Really? Oatmeal raisin cookies roll. I don't want to hear it. I with with pastrami. I guess that's right. That's a little. It's just an odd know, combination. Yeah, and also because you're gonna want something like actually sweet to balance out all that saltiness. Yeah, kind of. I, I, I know that's people fair. in New York City have like exotic tastes, so maybe this is just a thing I don't get. I don't know. Shut up. <laughs> but this, yeah, this song is. I actually really like this track. Yes, it's very synchronicity. Mm-hmm. level but it's it's so. also just like that i guess it's that that primal thing that i like about the 80s just like music from my early childhood where it's like all synth sounds that kind of sound like pan like the, what this song is it's all synth that sounds like pan flutes and um yeah things like that but it's very rhythmic and very playful and i just enjoy that sound yeah it's very it's exotic mm-hmm. while still having sort of a, a neutral kind of grounded base to it but but it it is very playful because like she's she's like stalking him to work but like like she's making it out like it's a game kind of yeah she's playing his games right she thinks she's playing his game yes but she tells him he finally like he kind of relents because she storms out because he's got a hot secretary Mm -hmm. and she just says he takes her to like a stock traders bar for lunch and they're all making out and she just says i wonder what it would be like to be one of the boys and so he yeah. sends her a tuxedo and a mustache and invites her to dinner at a steakhouse with him. And honest to God, the scene changed me. <laughs> How so? It made me, it like solidified this sort of nebulous love affair with menswear. Because mm. I love menswear. And I love again, like very polished menswear. Like I have a, I have a tuxedo that I wear, like bow tie and everything. Right. Yeah, I've, I've, I've worn it on Record Saturday. I mean, I sort of, I like to wear my menswear with heels, but I went through like a big menswear phase after I saw this movie. 
was sort of like this plus Tom Waits was like a little, it's kind of hard to describe, but I fucking, and I love women in menswear. Absolutely. 100%. It's like, it just, it kills me. Oh, w- women can totally rock it. A, a good tuxedo. Like, and especially yeah. Kim Basinger. She can really make that tuxedo work. Yeah. The mustache is a little much. It's a little. It's, yeah, it's it's a little much, but it's also like I'm sure in the '80s that was seen as like very risque. Yeah, and but also yeah, like the the androgyny of it. Also, mm-hmm. that cheese plate looks fucking amazing. If I could wear a tuxedo and eat a cheese plate, that is literally my best night. That's a pretty good night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's everything I want. Um, and he tells her he says I've got this chick on the side because he's talking to her like she's one of the guys. Right, and he's telling her about herself. Yeah, she's got one of those heart-shaped asses. <laughs> yeah. And when I watched this, this was like the era of like having like a big butt, which I did not have. I'm 5'3", I weigh 106 pounds. I was never going to have like a booty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that immediately following this scene, they're out on the street. So in a car drives by and a guy screams a homophobic slur at, her, at them. And uh, Elizabeth shouts at the guy. And they stop and they chase them down the street into an alley and they have a, a, a very strange fight. But the, yeah. fight, the fight is set to John Taylor's I Do What I Do. Yes, now let's play that. Yes. So I want to break this down into two things. Um, once she like kicks him in the balls mm-hmm. and Mickey Rourke like kicks the other guy, or sorry, John Gray, and then he whips out a knife and she gets it away from him and then stabs the guy that is fighting John Gray. It's sort of like a sexy roadhouse. A little bit, yeah. It's like, like a porno version of Roadhouse. Like roadhouse keep... XXX. <laughs> this this ain't Roadhouse XXX. <laughs> Because because that's coming later. Yes. Uh, but people, but yeah, just get get like accidentally stabbed in this scene. It's it's very strange. Yeah. But then they're so turned on by it that they have like it's it kind of, I think it's in like a subway station. Maybe and well, a subway but, terminal. I think because he's trying to like. I'm not really sure. But yeah, they're trying well, to was, escape basically. So they're probably in like a subway terminal terminal. Yeah, that's closed for the night and, uh. Then, of course, they have sex, because by this point, like, the sex is getting kind of boring. Yeah, it's just okay, like, oh. we get it. You guys do it all the time. It's that time of day. We, you know, we, it's been six hours. We have to do this or else this relationship is over. But honestly, there's, like, needles and rats there. Yeah. Like, it's, this it's is, like, a, the most unsexy location in the world. It's on a, a wet stone staircase in the middle of New York City in an a-, a dark alley somewhere. Like, a broken r- drain pipe is, like, flooding rain on top of them, and they're just going at it like a couple of hogs. Yeah. <laughs> and she's wearing a wet tank top. That should be noted. Of course. Of course. Um, and at that but... point, at that point, the uh, the music changes from uh, John Taylor to uh, a piece by uh, Jean-Michel Jarre called Arpeggiator, which... Which is, yeah, not on the soundtrack. Not... No, but it's it's again more of that kind of Stuart Copeland style sort of synth, you know, music. Yeah, but I want to talk about uh, John Taylor's "I Do What I Do." Sure, which is this is considered the theme for nine and a half weeks. Yes, this was this got a single, mm-hmm. 
And John Taylor, of course, the bassist for Duran Duran. And this song kind of confused me. Because it has, for starters, it has this like weird rush out at the front. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. And it's it's got that intense, like, now Rogers inspired bass line. But John Taylor's voice is not Simon Laban's voice. So it's just this no, weird it groan. And so there's there's all these great pieces. They do not fit well together. It makes what ends up happening is it makes something really, really unappetizing. It'd be like putting blue cheese on top of an ice cream sundae. Yeah, they might those, look they might look the same, but they don't go together. Yeah, and all those pieces, like blue cheese is awesome on its own. All the pieces in the ice cream sundae are great, but you don't combine them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just makes something disgusting. And so it's just that is it's sort of mind-blowing to me like i get obviously you know duran duran was huge and john taylor they'd recently uh they'd recently split he was headed to uh do the band power station the other guys were off to do the band arcadia so i get it i understand why they brought him in this piece just doesn't do it for me it, it just doesn't really go anywhere because 90 percent of the lyrics are you know I do what I do to have you, have you. I do it all to have you. I do, I do, I do. Yeah, it's over not over particularly it's creative. Repetitive. Yeah, also, and I... This, sorry. No, go on. But this was also uh, originally recorded by uh, the artist... Uh, where's my notes here? Re- recorded by the artist uh, Del Bello, and the studio or the, the producers rejected her version and re-recorded it with John Taylor. Del Bello, who we'll talk about in a second... Um, yes. Is also Canadian. <laughs> so what's that? Three now? Yeah, it's three. That's our three Canadians. Mm. So a sol- at least a solid thirty percent of this soundtrack uh, goes- belongs to the Great White North. Yes, indeed. And I actually I checked in with my friend Michelle O'Brien, who tweets it uh, at Wolf underscore six. She is the biggest Duran Duran fan I know, mm-hmm. and I asked her about this. And I said, I felt, I feel like I'm missing something. So I turned to the expert and she said, I haven't heard it in years. <laughs> that was all she said. Oh, that should so, tell you something. Yeah, it doesn't, this, I don't think is, is particularly well-liked song. I couldn't right. find, I found a lot of people saying like, Ugh, this song blows. It was actually nominated for a Razzie. The film was nominated for three Razzies. Oh, what were the other two? Uh, See, now we have to talk about the Razzies. Uh, yeah, no, this film was nominated for three uh, Razzies. Kim Basinger was nominated for Worst Actress. It was nominated for Worst Screenplay. And for, uh, as I said, Worst Original Song here. But so very quickly, because we couldn't find where this song was. Let's talk about uh, uh, DeBello's Black on Black. Yeah, let's go ahead and play a clip right here. Touch yourself and you go blind. A warning signal from above A place where sinners fall in love They say that opposites attract So very strange Because this was one you really liked. Yeah, this was the one that stood out to me on, on my first listen. And like I'm driving, I'm no shit, I'm driving to work like you said. And this song comes on and I just kind of start bopping in my seat on the highway to this song and it just the the rhythm hit me and the uh the beat was like really really 
it had a nice beat and you could dance to it okay i'll say it <laughs> but we'll like it, your wedding yeah exactly but it just kept building and i just kind of kept digging on it and i i like i just like this song i don't know what it is about it. yeah lyrically it's pretty kinky uh for me it was kind of some more you know snarl singing that i don't really like like compared like alternated with that breathlessness i just this one didn't do it for me mm. well I, also this was not the original the i guess original studio version of the song this may be a demo or a different like remix or something but this is more dance poppy than the official one that's on the Dobello album that oh, okay. version has is a little bit has a little bit more of the like alt rock kind of flavor to it. Oh, nice! Um, yeah, and that's sort of a little more what she's known for. Yeah, and but I think I think with this one, I just enjoy it because uh, I don't, I think I think it's really is just the percussion and the beat really kind of drove it along to me, and it's the one that for some reason I will remember from this soundtrack, which I might be the only person alive. <laughs> Not who... slave to love. No, no. Well, that's going to be in, in in my head until the day I die for other reasons. <laughs> but this is the one that I want to remember. I want you to think about that every time you're eating soup, and then think of me. I hate you so much. <laughs> oh God, the conditioning's working. I can feel it. Oh no. <laughs> so, well. When she gets the watch, he tells her, like, people used to be hypnotized by the TikToking. And, like, this soundtrack is very hypnotic. Like, it it just, it's, like you said, it's Pavlovian. It's, yeah, it's very, there's, it's very rhythmic. And, in, like, like, like we said earlier, like, this is definitely sex music, but it works. Like, what, <laughs> what more can you say? But it works. And I, I, I hate to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about, but, you know, this is like that lizard part of my brain just taking over and saying, no, you like the fuck out of this. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, uh, let's move on from this because we have a big set piece we have to talk about. Oh, yes. Because, this is the one you've all been waiting for. Yes. It's the scene where they go to a, a furniture store and buy a proper bed to fuck on. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is a scene, though. Did you hear what they said over the PA? Yes, they were, uh, I guess, paging a one Jerry Bruckheimer. <laughs> Why? Nobody knows. Who knows? Jer- who is Jerry Bruckheimer? Eh, not important. <laughs> um, so they also that- buy a riding crop? That scene is wild. Especially because, like, who has a horse store, like, in the middle of Manhattan? It's like a cowboy supply store. We have those around here. I live, like, two miles from one. But I can't imagine there being one in the middle of the city. Yeah, like, are people riding horses? I mean, the cops must be. I guess, or you, like, you go out to the Hamptons to your, you yeah, know. You, your... Uh, yeah, you, you ride your horse on the beaches, I guess. I don't know, not on Coney Island, unless you're, unless you're Bojack Horseman, you're trying to buy needles, like. Yeah, maybe. But, but like, uh... she, she's, like, sitting in a corner, and he's just, like, he's got a riding crop, and he's trying out a couple, and he's just swinging it around like crazy. And, the, and they're the... all sort of, like, appalled, like, my God. It's also like, buddy, there are stores for that. Just go to, like, go to Times Square. You can buy one there. And no one will judge you. Yeah. And also, this is a time long before, you know, Amazon delivery, where you can just order kinky shit off, off the internet and have it delivered to you in the privacy of your own home. But but anyway, so they're, they're buying their, their, uh, their new toys, as it were. Which you never see them use. You never see them use the crop. No, no, not at all. That that scene implies a much different movie, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. One, and one that I, really doesn't wouldn't exist for another like twenty 
30 years. Well, let's talk about that movie for a minute while we're on this scene. Sure. Uh, We are, of course, referring to Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes. Which the uh, it is about a naive girl who gets in a relationship with a rich man who's into, you know, bondage and sex games. That man is Christian Grey. The man in this film is John Gray. Mm-hmm. Fifty Shades of Grey is a is a nine and a half weeks ripoff. It is, it is. absolutely. Everyone's like, "Oh, it's Twilight fan fiction, motherfucker!" It's nine and a half weeks fan fiction. And I feel like if you said it was nine and a half weeks fan fiction, you you could have easily gotten around like copyright issues yeah i mean maybe that's the only reason 50 shades of gray exists it's because like oh i'm going to get sued if i publish this in its original form yeah well here's the best thing i and i've never seen 50 shades of gray because i couldn't give less of a shit the best thing i learned about the 50 shades of gray trilogy other than Mm. reading the reviews of them which are hysterical in 50 shades darker kim basinger plays Elena Lincoln, who is the woman who teaches Christian Grey about BDSM. Oh, God. It all comes back around. Like Fifty Shades of Grey exists, I think we can agree, it is the, it is the sequel to Nine and a Half Weeks. I know there is a, uh, another Nine and a Half Weeks, also known as Love in Paris, which in that one, uh, Lizzie has died. I think oh, she changed damn. her name to Elena Lincoln. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, she, oh, she, she quote unquote died. I see what you're saying. Died. Because yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't see her die. It's just like, oh, yeah, she's dead. That, that, so, that opens up a whole new world. That it's, I, the, it's the I, nine and a half weeks extended universe. Nine and a half weeks verse that exists for the, the timeline for nine and a half weeks skews out like 30 years. Yep. <laughs> Wow. I know. Isn't that delightful? Next, you're going to tell me that, that they're both in, involved in the Winslow verse. I love it. <laughs> well, uh, there actually there is a, a prequel called The First Nine and a Half Weeks. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. It was a uh, 1998 straight to video. Of course. Yes. Um, so, but when Fifty Shades uh, hit theaters, a lot of people actually wrote retrospectives on nine and a half weeks. Oh wow! Um, and we'll we'll post some of those in the uh, on the web, on our Twitter. But it it kind of got a second because I mean this was a flop when it came out. Uh, it played very well overseas, and then you know the the rental market I think definitely bolstered it. But it it got kind of a second look when uh, when Fifty Shades of Grey came out. It's the superior film because. John is weird, and he certainly does some things that we now consider problematic, but he's kind of sweet, whereas Christian Grey just seems like the biggest asshole. And from what I know about Fifty Shades of Grey, he's much more willing to use his money to kind of get out of all those sticky situations. Yeah, and like, he he's much more controlling of her. Mm-hmm. Well, it's to the point where, like, they write a contract out for how controlling he's allowed to be, right? Yeah, and it's, yeah, that, to me, and, you know, I'm certainly not trying to kink shame anyone, like, you live your life, but 
the way that bondage is presented there and obviously like this is not really so much bondage we don't see her like tied up we see her blindfolded a lot but yeah, um, it's, it's, this it's never gets t- it's very tame yeah this is more sort of mental mm-hmm, i think mm-hmm. it's it's psychosexual but in i've always from what i know of 50 shades of gray that guy just always looked like an abuser like he stalks her and it's creepy and you know oh wow you have a helicopter so it's okay but i don't know that guy just he drinks too much he just seems like an asshat fuck yeah, that and, guy and and in nine and a half weeks you kind of get the sense that john doesn't entirely know why he is the way he is he yeah. just kind of accepts it and rolls with it and this yeah is- he's not like i'm 50 shades of fucked up so you have to love me he's just like this is right. just like who i am so and and he you know spoiler alert she walks away at the end of it yeah and in 50 shades of gray they get married so she's just like yeah i'm gonna let this guy you know which is wild considering like like, the original novel and how like like where this whole story comes from yeah that's a whole we don't have time for that especially because we're just drawing out the inevitable yeah we are because we're teasing you you know yeah it's a sexy dance that we're doing for you do you like our sexy dance sexy Speaking of sexy dances. Look at me. I'm getting off on withholding. (laughs) Oh, boy. That was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. If this movie could be said to have a showstopper, it would be this. It's um, Elizabeth does a a sexy as hell striptease to Joe Cocker's version of You Can Leave Your Hat On. Yes. Let's just go to a clip right there. one of the sexiest scenes ever committed to film oh it's fantastic yes it is it's sensual it's it's fun it like this is this is something this is where you get that sense like this is a relationship that could work because they clearly what i love about the sex in this is they're laughing like they're having fun it's not serious in a lot of ways right and even this late in the film she's still into him and she's still into this yeah and we see the riding crop we see a pair of handcuffs we never see them used right like but... it's a lot there's so much is implied and that works so much better mm-hmm. i mean you know uh 50 shades of gray has its place porn has its place but like cinema can do these things too mm-hmm. you know and i think this scene like perfectly explain not explains this scene perfectly like illustrates that because yes. she's she's doing this sexy dance like from behind uh, a set of blinds with a bright light flashing on her, so you kind of see her shadow or silhouette as she's dancing. It's very well done. It's yes. very effective. Let me put it that yeah. way. <laughs> so, um, and and also the thing, also the other thing that I love about the scene is when every time it cuts back to John as he's watching her, he's kind of mouthing the lyrics to the song. So they're playing the song in the room. Yeah, and I he's eating that. popcorn. Yeah. And wearing sweatpants. (laughs) So, but this song especially is, it's kind of, again, it's silly in places. Um, You know, 
the for the first line or the first verse is is all striptease. It's you know mm-hmm. you take off your coat, take off your dress, take off your shoes. I I mean I guess I don't have a lot of dresses that unbutton. So I'm just trying to picture like having my hat on while trying to get my dress up over my head. It's not going well. It's like not sexy, but maybe maybe it's her buttons down in the front. Um, or or but, maybe she's like practiced this a lot. Yeah, but uh, there's the line like wave your arms up in the air and shake them. Like, look, buddy. Again, I don't kink shame. What? What? Like you just don't care? What? Yeah. Exactly. What? How are we? <laughs> I mean, you look like one of those things that lures you in to buy a new car. Like, <laughs> I just am not really sure where where this is going there. Uh, and <laughs> free sex over here. <laughs> Come on down. So, to throw a little cold water on this, this song was written by Randy Newman. <laughs> that was a fact I learned literally two hours ago. Yes, and so if the fact that, like, she, that Kim Basinger went on to sort of more or less reprise her role here in Fifty Shades of Grave, that's the most delightful fact about this film. Then learning that Randy Newman wrote You Can Leave Your Hat On is the most depressing fact about this film. It's the opposite of a yeah. fun fact. And, and now that's a look, bad fact. Randy Newman has his place. I like, you know, a, a, a fair number of his songs. Then you listen to his version of this song, and it's it's like hearing your dad try to read a Playboy article to you. You don't oh want you don't want that. Oh boy, no! And I don't I don't get Randy Newman. That's just like I just do not. I don't understand him. I don't know what's great about him. I don't. He, I don't get Randy. Newman. I'll, I'll put it. I'll put it this way: He was the perfect person to write songs for Toy Story movies. I guess, it's, but I mean, he just it, writes songs about what he sees. He, I mean, he does. If you're Seth MacFarlane, then you don't know anything about Randy Newman. Uh, <laughs> but he's like, he's got that very kind of childlike, um, like, like fun uncle vibe to all of his songs. And like, you, I just can't wrap my head around the idea of Randy Newman asking anyone to do a striptease. It just doesn't work. <laughs> No, Rand- I mean, the one thing I will give Randy Newman credit on this song is at least it doesn't like go as a normal song and then right at the end go off it's a weird distant universe like literally every other song he's ever written yeah (laughs) like listen to the monk theme it's like fine 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 and then it goes someplace weird and there's i mean obviously like you you can have codas and things you can have bridges but it it just goes like someplace not even like delightfully unexpected just weird like wait what did did we skip to the next song where are we (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah so but i will give you another delightful fact about this song tell me tom jones covered this song for the film the full monty oh shit that's right i forgot this was in the full monty yes also etta james covered this which is another delightful fact huh it's somehow easier to imagine like a guy leaving his hat on like a sexy fedora because yeah, because what are you gonna hide under a fedora really <laughs> Ugh. So, like a Randy Newman song, this film goes off in a real weird direction real fast. Yes. Right in the third act. So, they seem to be having fun, and then all of a sudden he decides he wants her to come to the Chelsea Hotel, which nothing good is going to come of that. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, nothing good has ever happened at the Chelsea Hotel. (laughs) And he invites a prostitute in, 
And he's blindfolded her, of course, like, okay, we get it. You like blindfolds. And the prostitute starts, like, caressing her, and then she takes off the blindfold, and she realizes that it's a woman, and she's like, no, and then the prostitute starts caressing Mickey Rourke, and she runs out, and then she decides, like, she needs to go someplace safe and get away, and she's, he's screaming at her, like, what does it feel like to be out of control? So she runs into a porno theater, and, like, a nudie booth, and she watches some people having sex in, like, the most joyless scene. It looks like a funeral. Yeah, th- this is the death of her libido. It's what this. Yeah, is. it's well, it's kind of true. Yeah, it really is. It's like symbolic or like whatever. Whoa! But yeah, yeah, it's like really deep. Things can mean things. Uh, yeah, this film tries so hard to be arty, and it it is in a lot of ways. There's a lot of whispers and a lot of like scenes that are silent and glances, but it's also incredibly cheesy. Mm. It's very like in your but, face, and it smacks you with the moral like a hammer. Yeah, so she they watch people having sex and she like kisses a guy and then she's like drawn to John and they start making out. But she's still sad. Mm-hmm. So she has her art opening, which is like a big thing for her, and it looks like a horrible party. The artist isn't having any fun. And... Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones isn't having any fun. Yeah. And she has a breakdown and then she goes and calls him. She goes over to his house and the next morning she realizes this isn't going to work because it's been nine and a half weeks and that's the title of the film. And so she leaves and he whispers like, I know you're going to come back to me. And, but yeah, he should probably say it louder. If he, you know, wants her to hear. And it's sad. I mean, it's, but you understand like she had to grow as a person. Yes. And recognize that this wasn't working for her. Right. She had to learn a few things about herself before she was going to let herself move on from this. Yeah. She's bolder. She's less frigid, but she knew when to walk away. It's a good movie. It's a good end. I mean, it's a, it is a good ending because that's, that's how a, a lot of these things end sometimes. And that's fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. And she walked away from a relationship that was getting abusive. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the end of this movie. Yeah, it, it works. So. It definitely works. And which leads us to our last song. Uh, yeah, hidden deep in the end credits of this movie is a song called, appropriately enough, Let It Go by the artist uh, Luba. Oh, is is that the song from Frozen? It is. That's what this, this nine and a half weeks is what the song from Frozen is about. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't see Frozen, so I don't know. It's, you know, every, every four-year-old knows the lyrics to this song. <laughs> I don't have any four-year-olds. Let so. it go. Let it go. No more riding crops anymore. Something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's go to a real okay. Let it go. Let it free your body. Let it move your soul. This is a very odd song to end the film with. Yeah, talk talk to me about it. I'm going to try to be delicate here. It's got a very kind of like international flavor to it, and it's very like an it's very upbeat and very happy, kind of accidentally. And I guess it, I guess it does kind of give you the vibe that you know she's moving on and she's she's free free from this abusive relationship, and she's kind of moving onward and upward. 
um, until you learn about uh, what happens in another nine and a half weeks. But then this song itself, I don't know what's going on here, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, this one I was confused by. And I think partially because I didn't hear it in the credits. Mm -hmm. I just heard it, so it seemed kind of disconnected to me. Yeah, and and it doesn't really connect to the film uh, except for the general theme of letting go of a relationship. But then you like watch the music video that this song definitely does have, <laughs> and <laughs> it's basically like a um, I don't know. It's like one of those like world uh, cultural festivals that you that we got a lot of in the eighties and nineties. Oh, it's yeah. just you know it's it's white people and and black people and Hispanic people and like people of of the world coming together to have a dance party and okay, but what does any of this have to do with nine and a half weeks, other than the title? I do not know. Yeah, no, I'm 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 I've drawn a blank here. So sorry, sorry, Luba. You tried to do something beautiful and it just didn't happen. No, the best is yet to come. It's fine. It's honestly we get it both of the songs together like we've talked about both of the songs now like it sounds like somebody working on the soundtrack trying to be clever yeah and it's just not happening no like i get it i see what you did there and thank you but no yeah so i should have just uh honestly should have reprised uh cons i think would have been a good Mm -hmm. yeah a good outro here or well, I was gonna say you can leave your hat on, but no, that's giving the film a little too much credit, or that, that's that's no. not that's that's giving John too much credit, I think. No, or uh, we could reprise "Slave to Love." I'm going never gonna stop. Doing I'm going that. to say that makes the most sense, but I still don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I mean, that's that's what it should have been, because even even wow. after, I mean, in the context <laughs> of that song, even after this relationship. I think that's still going to be st- stuck in her head for quite a long time. It's going to be stuck in all our heads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So even you, the listener. Yes. Con- uh, congratulations, listener. You're part of this nightmare as well. Yeah. Now you're a slave to love. Oh, God. Oh, God. This is a this is a disease we're spreading. And I. Yep. I, I'm so sorry, everybody. Well, we, we are patient zero for this pandemic. <laughs> we just let loose on the world. And I'm sorry. I regret nothing. So, how does this work as a uh, as a soundtrack? I think largely it does work. Like it's it's it gives you the the flavor of the movie and sort of the uh, the the sensual <laughs> reminders of scenes from the film. But also, it's it's this is a good album to put on in the bedroom. I'm gonna say that right now. Like it just straight up is, and I think they knew exactly what they were doing when they put it together. Aside from the two mm-hmm. Luba tracks, which uh, I think uh, I think they were also being clever because that name uh, sounds like something you could use in the bedroom. Gross. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm super gross. I hate. I know. You. I'm. Uh, uh, I'm sorry for everything. <laughs> Libby, how how does this work as a soundtrack? What do you think? I think this works as a soundtrack. But you have to see the movie first. I don't think it stands alone as an album. It's too, too linked with the movie. Which, That's you know, fair. as someone who's seen this movie and enjoys it, I I really like, I like that about it. Um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. It, so it, it does. Like like we 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 mentioned earlier, like it, it works in tandem with the film. And once you've listened to it, 
and then come to the film and watched it and then li- i mean listen to it again you you get that feeling you you remember the film. you get more out of you it. do you definitely do so all right so okay i guess the last question what is your favorite song on this album oh definitely you can leave your hat on um what about you i mean yeah it's got to be a tie between you can leave your hat on and i i'm i'm still partial to black on black i just enjoy the beat and the uh, yeah the music, I, music in it it's great i'd say uh secondarily uh the city never sleeps that's a good one too yeah on a big annie lennox kick right now yeah. so all right well then that wraps up this week's episode mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what are we doing next time so on our next episode, episode 30 is going to be another one of our On the Fives episodes. Oh, boy. And uh, even though this this one you're listening to right now has come out after the Academy Awards, I still think we should do our due diligence and do an Oscar episode. So we are going to be counting down some of our uh, favorite Oscar-nominated uh, original songs. So we'll talk about that okay. uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm going to really, really embarrass myself on this one because I got a really bad one. Oh, boy. I can't wait. Because there, yeah. there's some really good ones in the mix and some real stinkers, too. So <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, well, like, I I love, 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 unapologetically love Brian Adams. Have you ever really loved a woman? Don mm, Juan DeMarco. Yeah. And it's like, that's a well-reviled song. It's, but I would die for that song. It's I love it's it. too cheesy to live. Yes, I love it. <laughs> but I had that album, Eighteen Till I Die, that has a song on it called "I Want to Be Your Underwear," which makes Nine and a Half Weeks look like Sesame Street. Yowza! All right. Yeah, listen to it. It's really bad. I will do. I will do no such thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm gonna send it to you. <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, that's coming up on episode thirty. So get excited for that. We will also. I am excited. Have uh, yes. We will also have the uh, the poll for this episode up the day this comes out on Thursday. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, Libby, where can our listeners find you on the internet? So, well, you can always find me on Twitter at Libby Cudmore. Uh, we're going to be starting season five of The Shield over at the Shattered Shield podcast. So that's going to be a really great season. We have some incredible guests coming up. Oh, really, wow. really excited nice. about that. Yeah. So, Joe, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cordial Wombats, or you can listen to me on the Christmas Creeps podcast at Christmas Creeps. Uh, we'll have a new episode out. Uh, I guess by the time this episode airs, a new episode will be out. I don't know what we're doing yet, so that'll be fun. <laughs> Ooh, it's like a fun surprise. It's like we're blindfolded and you're feeding us Christmas Creeps. and We don't know if it's going to be honey or hot peppers. Maybe both. <laughs> uh, but if you have any questions or comments or any uh, recommendations for future episodes we still have to get to a lot of these recommendations uh, but you can send those to us at uh, ostpartypod at gmail.com or you can find us on twitter at ostparty uh, we will be uh, talking about this soundtrack and others for uh, the foreseeable future yes forever we love this show and we want you to love it too so please tell yeah. a friend yeah, leave a review, retweet us, listen and love. Absolutely. Tell your uh, the person you're tying up and making soup for. Whatever. <laughs> make them listen to it. Make them give us a star rating on iTunes. Yeah. Make this part of your sex routine. Make this a fun sex game for your partners. I can't legally condone any of that. <laughs> 
Oh, uh, but anyway, so that's the OST party for this week. I'm Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. Buy the ticket. Take the ride. Thank you.